Welcome to the church family that is lifting lives through living love, inspiring hope, filling with faith, and transforming our world. These recorded messages are made available so that you might have additional opportunities to stay connected with us, and then you might learn and grow in your faith. God bless you as you hear the word today. And now, the message. Our reading today is from 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see, was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the house of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. So he went and lay down. Again the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me? My son Eli said, I did not call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. A third time the Lord called Samuel. And Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am. You called me. Then Eli realized that the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, Go and lie down, and if he calls you, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood there, calling as in other times, Samuel, Samuel. Then Samuel said, Speak for your servant is listening. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. When Jamal and I got engaged, one of the people I really wanted her to meet in my family was my great aunt Marky. And aunt Marky by that time was living in a nursing home facility, but she was still sharp as a tack, smart as a whip. And, and, the, and the great thing about my aunt Marky is that she just was this wealth of knowledge and stories about family history. And so I wanted Jamelin to kind of experience that, and my Aunt Marky did not disappoint. When we sat and visited with her, she told Jamelin all about my dad when he was a little boy and how he would come down the, the street. My, she lived a couple blocks away from my grandmother and how he would come down and spend time with her and Uncle John. And, he, and she talked about my grandmother and helped, basically just helped Jamelin understand my family and where I was from. It was such a gift. And then she surprised us because uh, as a wedding gift, she presented us with this album, which contains pictures. I don't know if you'll be able to see them from where you're sitting. The choir has a much better look, but these are pictures of, these are my great-grandparents, the day of their wedding, and, and, and grandparents, and you know, my grandfather, and my uncle John, and my grandfather serving uh, in, in the war, and, and then my dad all the way through. And then, eventually, you get to a genealogy that she prepared, tracing my lineage, all the way back to Roger Williamson in 1635, 
who came from England to Virginia County, to the Virginia colony. You know, there's this, you need this, this um, I don't know, increased interest in our world today in genealogies. I mean, you can, with just the press of a couple buttons, you can go to Ancestry.com and have access to all this information that years ago would have taken forever to track down and find. Or you can order a test from 23andMe and do DNA testing, and it can tell you, you know, what countries and continents of the world your ancestors come, came from. And, and, and this increased interest in, in genealogy, I think partly it's because how easy it is to find information today, but I also think it's a reflection of how how you know, displaced we are as a society. That as we're more mobile, able to move around the country, we, we put down our roots a little bit less in communities and places in the world. And, and so we need this sense of genealogy to give us a sense of who we are and where we're from and, and, and where we belong in the world. So in today's story, I want to track two different genealogies. And, and I want to acknowledge before I begin, this story is, is about more than genealogies, the story of Samuel and Eli. It's really about a turn that's taking place in Israelite history. Last week, we talked about Deborah and the judges. And if you remember, I said the judges covers, you know, three centuries of Israelite history before they really became a unified nation, when they were just a collection of tribes. And I shared this little an image of a cycle that takes place throughout Judges. It repeats again and again and again. The people sin, turn away from God. That God allows a foreign, you know, a king or, or power to oppress them. They cry out in repentance for God's help. God sends a judge to deliver them. And then after the judge delivers them, they have a period of peace, usually for about a generation or so before the next generation turns away and the whole cycle repeats itself. Except in truth, it's really not a cycle so much as it is a downward spiral for Israel. Because over the course of 12 different judges, the people sin more and more and more and they repent less and less and less. And so they end up with less and less peace. So by the time you get to Samuel, things are really falling apart. Uh, you know, just to kind of get a picture of what was going on. First off, society was falling apart. Like all the norms and structures and, and things that, you know, should be happening, they're, they're, they're just a complete disarray. If you, lead, if you read the last five chapters of the book of Judges, I just want to warn you, you're going to read things that you're going to be shocked and amazed and not in a good way. You're going to be saying, they put that in the Bible, that's what was going on in their world, in their country at the time. It's, it's pretty crazy. On top of that, there was foreign powers that were growing and threatening, specifically the Philistines were threatening to invade and take over Israel. And then there's an increasing distrust of institutions. There were corrupt priests who were eroding the confidence of the people and leading them astray. And then on top of that, you have this mounting pressure for a king, for a leader, a savior who would, who would kind of put everything back in place. When you look at that kind of quick description of what was happening in Samuel's time, you realize it's not too far different from our day and age to now. And all this gets summarized in the very first verse that Sheila read for us. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare which we can take on a literal level, meaning that it was rare for someone to have a vision, the, 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 the voice of the Lord speaking to them. But, but metaphorically, I think he's also describing, the author is describing 
what was taking place in Israelite society at that time, that the life-giving, order-bringing word of God was absent from society and the people were suffering. Enter the story, a young man named Samuel. Before we get to Samuel, though, uh, we're going to jump back for a second. I said there would be two genealogies, and the first genealogy I want to draw attention to is that of Eli. Eli was a priest, in fact, a chief priest, a head priest, at the tabernacle in Shiloh, which was a holy place where all the people came to worship and to seek God's presence. And it wasn't, remember I said there was like this distrust in religious institutions that they were corrupt priests? That was not Eli. Eli was a good and faithful and noble man. The problem is, he was a terrible father. He had two sons who, like him, were priests because the, the, the role of priest passed from father to son and so on. Except his sons were terrible priests. They were scoundrels, the Bible says. They had no regard for the Lord. When people would come and make offerings at Shiloh, they would take the best part of the offerings for themselves, take a double portion. They slept with women who would come and pray at the gates. They prayed on those who were seeking hope. And God's judgment against them and against Eli was severe. God sent word to Eli and he said this, therefore the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. For the time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age. In other words, God is telling Eli, I'm going to kill your sons. Your genealogy or your lineage is coming to an end. Your priestly house will not stand before me. Instead, I'm going to raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. So it's a word of judgment against Eli that his genealogy, his lineage is coming to an end. Meanwhile, you have another lineage, another genealogy that is threatened, not by corruption, but by infertility. For there's a man named Elkanah, and he has a wife named Hannah, and the problem is that Hannah is barren. She's unable to give birth to a son, to an heir. Now, Elkanah takes to him a second wife, Peninnah. Who, who can fulfill that duty, who will bring him heirs. And so, yay, the genealogy continues. The problem is, is that Peninnah rubs Hannah's face in it day and night, that she's able to give children to Elkanah, whereas Hannah cannot. And even though Hannah is favored by her husband, she receives double portion of his love and attention, she still bears this, this wound in her heart. And Peninnah, for her part, rubs her face in it so badly that she, you know, weeps and cries and can't even eat. She's so upset. Now, the tradition for Elkanah was, you know, every year he would take his household to Shiloh, to the tabernacle, to pray. And whenever they would go there, Hannah would go to the gates of the tabernacle. She wasn't allowed to enter. She would go to the gates, and there she would bow down, prostrate herself before God, and she would pray and pray and pray and pray. 
for God to give her a child, a son, an heir. And her prayers were so intense and so powerful, she, she made a bargain, a deal with God. She said, if you give me a child, I promise you I will give him back to you. He will be devoted to the Lord all the days of his life. Now, Eli is standing at a distance watching her prayer, and apparently her prayer was so intense. I mean, I can imagine she's swaying and moving, and Eli thinks she's drunk. And so he goes to her, you know, as if to say, you know, your, your behavior is unseemly. Why don't you just go back home, sleep it off? And Hannah says, no, 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 you don't understand. And she explains to Eli what she's praying for, the situation she's in. And Eli, moved by compassion, tells her, go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant what you have asked of him. And sure enough, Hannah goes in peace and later that year, she becomes pregnant. She doesn't go back immediately to Shiloh, but instead she stays and she takes care of the baby until the point when he is weaned. She names him Samuel, which means God hears. Any of Samuel's in the house, you know what your name means now, God hears. And when he reaches the age where he, she's, he's no longer dependent on her as a mother, he bring, uh, Hannah brings him back to the temple, presents him before Eli, reminds him of the vow she made, and then hands over her son to be raised by Eli. So now you have these two genealogies coming together. That you have Eli, whose story and lineage is done. His, you know, God has told him judgment and doom is coming. He will have no uh, grandchildren. His, his life is coming to an end. And yet he has this opportunity to pour love and faith and hope into a young boy given to him to raise in Samuel. And then, miracle of all miracles, the word of the Lord, which was rare in those days, appears to young Samuel while he is sleeping. Samuel is sleeping and he hears the voice of God calling to him, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel wakes up wonders who it is who's calling him. He assumes it must be Eli, so he goes to the priest's quarters, wakes him up, and Eli says, I didn't call for you, go back to bed. Second time, God calls to Samuel, twice, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel wakes up, goes to Eli, wakes him up, and you can imagine Eli's starting to get a little frustrated. He has a busy day ahead of him. Leave me alone, go back to sleep. Third time, God calls to Samuel. And this time when Samuel wakes up Eli, Eli recognizes, oh, something is happening here. The word of God is speaking to him. And so he coaches and counsels Samuel on how to respond. He says, go and lie down. And if he calls you again, simply say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. There's a poignancy to this moment, right? Because God perhaps used to speak to Eli. Maybe that's how Eli recognizes his voice. Except God isn't speaking to Eli anymore. The last word that Eli received from God was a word of judgment. And so surely it pains Eli on some levels that God is not speaking to him anymore. And yet he counsels and coaches Samuel on how to respond when God calls his name. And so Samuel goes and lies down again. And sure enough, when God calls for the calls him again. This time, Samuel sits up and says, speak. Your servant is listening. 
Now that's where Sheila stopped our Bible reading for today. That's where we tend to stop the Sunday school lesson, right? Do you know what God says to Samuel? I wish I could tell you it was a word of blessing and grace. It was not. It's a word of judgment. God says to Samuel, I told your master Eli the judgment was coming upon him and his household for his sons have blasphemed against me. They have broken the final straw. Tell Eli that the judgment is coming and coming soon and no offering, no uh, gift would remove the guilt from his house. That's the word Samuel receives. I can only imagine the sleepless night he has after that. The next morning, Eli comes to him, calls to him, says, Samuel, Samuel, come to me. And Samuel responds the same way he to God, here I am. And then Eli says, tell me what he said, son. And then perhaps noticing how difficult it was for Samuel to speak, Eli softens the blow. He says, whatever it was that God said to you, don't hide it from me. Because if you do that, worse will come on you than he's already said it's going to happen to me. So just tell it to me. So Samuel told him everything. And then Eli chose in that moment to reply, and he said, he is the Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. You see, Eli knew, trusted, that God's will was good even if it wasn't necessarily good for him and for his sons. He knew that God had also promised that he was going to raise up another priest who would serve God in the way that God wanted. And and Eli chose in that moment to trust, to see it not as punishment upon him, but to see it as grace even, that he was allowed to participate in the raising and forming of the one who would replace him. This to me is a beautiful and amazing story. That God would take the brokenness of Eli's life. That God would take the brokenness of Hannah's heart. And that he would use that brokenness to nourish and raise the prophet through whom he would establish the throne of David. Because of Eli, Samuel learned to listen to, attune his life to God's voice. But also because of Eli, he learned to trust that no matter what word of God he received, to trust in that and to surrender his life to it. I started off talking about genealogies and let me explain where that came from and why. I just finished reading a book, a book by Andy Crouch called The Life We're Looking For. And in the final chapter of his book, which I just finished like a week ago, I just read it like a week ago, He reflects on the genealogies of Jesus. And there's two genealogies of Jesus that we find in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospel. And those two genealogies are not identical. Each of them is edited, you know, some generations are left out here and there, and they're curated in order to tell a story to make a point. Samuel, or not Samuel, Matthew, is making the connection from Jesus all the way to Abraham. Luke goes so far as to go Jesus all the way back to Adam. 
But Andy Crouch notes that even though the two genealogies are, are curated and edited a little bit, and both of them have, are pretty complete when you consider the total length that they cover. He notes that, you know, say between Jesus and Abraham, there's about 2,000 years of history. Well, then he says, well, imagine that a generation lasts about 20 years from, you know, the birth of a child to when they carry on to having their children. So roughly five generations per century. So in 2,000 years, you're talking about a chain of about 100 individuals that connects Jesus all the way back to Abraham. A hundred people. That's about maybe a little bit less than what we have sitting in the sanctuary today. Now in that chain of 100 people, there's a lot of history that would get covered, right? From Abraham, wandering, leaving his home into the promised land, you know, the, the early fathers of Israel, then there, you know, the movement through Joseph into Egypt, 300 years there, slavery, captivity, release, the exodus, wandering in the wilderness, entering into the promised land, 300 years for the judges, the rise and fall of the monarchy, exile into Babylon, then return and rebuilding and waiting, centuries of waiting and waiting and waiting for the Messiah to appear. That's a lot of history, but it's all covered by about 100 people more or less. And by the same token, if there's a hundred years separating Jesus from Abraham, then it's about a hundred generations separating Jesus and us today. Which is to say that each one of us, if we could, could trace a chain of 100 individuals back to the time of Jesus and the early church. Now, my Aunt Marky's genealogy doesn't go that far back. But I imagine, you know, imagine if you could, that you, if you were standing in a line with those hundred people, hand to hand with your father or mother, and they hand to hand with their father or mother, you know, all the way down. For me, if I take two steps down that chain, I'm face to face with my grandfather, Billy, who was born during World War I, lived through the Great Depression, served during World War II. I go two steps beyond that, and I am face to face with someone who lived as a teenager through the Civil War. I go two steps beyond that, and I'm face to face with my great, 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 great grandfather George, who was born on the eve of the American Revolution in 1774. His father, Nathan, probably served fought in the Revolutionary War. And if I go one, two, three, four, six generations before that, that's when I get to Roger Williamson, my ancestor who came in 1635 from England to the New World in the Virginia colonies. I take a step beyond Roger, I'm in a different country. And I don't know how many steps beyond that I have to go before I start interacting with people who share a different language, a different culture entirely. Every single one of us gathered here. We go far enough down the line, we're going to end up different places, different times. And though we are separated from those individuals by centuries, it's only a hundred-person chain. 
And our lives may look different from each other in terms of technology and culture and language, but this we have in common, that every generation is carried forward by love. In the midst of war, disease, famine, whatever they may have faced, every generation has done what it had to do to protect life and to pass it on to the next. Now that is not to say that every step, every link in that chain is good or noble. I'm sure if I were to look back through the histories of all those men that were listed in this uh, genealogy, there would be stories that I would find it tough to read and to own as part of my chain. Even in Jesus' genealogy, there's Rahab, who was a prostitute. There's murderers. There's disastrous kings and leaders. In all of our stories, there are both the perpetrators of violence and the victims of violence, too. It's all part of the chain. In Exodus chapter 20, God declares, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. And in Eli's story, we even see it going in the reverse order. Instead of the child being punished for the parent, you have the parent being punished for the child. And it is true. I mean, as, as, as harsh as those words are, it is true. Isn't it that the, that the sins of the fathers end up showing up in our lives and in the lives of those who come after Not to say that we bear the guilt of those sins, but we live with the consequences, the realities of the sins that our fathers and forefathers carried and created. But the good news is in the second half of that verse. He says, but I am also the God who shows steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. It wasn't until I read Andy's book that I really thought about how great a distance of time is covered by that phrase, a thousand generations. In fact, Andy makes the point, he says, three to four generations, as real as the the reality of sin and evil is, it at most has a half-life for it to eventually be swallowed up in the story of God's grace and love. Because, he says, there is a second chain. Yes, there's the chain of genealogy of flesh and blood and DNA, but there is a more important chain, he says, the chain of genuine love, the chain of faith and hope passed down from generation to generation, not just through the bonds of a family, but through the bonds of the family of faith. That every generation has done what it needed to do to tell the story of Jesus from person to person until somehow it reaches us. If you're sitting here today, if you're watching us online, you are part of this chain going all the way back to the original disciples sitting in the upper room. And here's the the grace, is that this story is the one that counts, that the story of God's faithfulness, it endures long after the effects of sin are gone. And what makes Samuel's story so powerful is he has both stories to hold on to. Yes, the story of his, of his mother, 
who sacrificially gave him up, who had such love for him that she would give him over to the Lord. But then he also has the example and witness of Eli, who poured into him his wisdom and faith and even showed him how to accept hard news with grace. Because of both of those, Samuel became the prophet that he would eventually become. And for Eli too, think about it, how great a grace this is. That even though his biological chain was coming to an end, God gave him the opportunity to pour his wisdom, his faith, his knowledge into someone else. And thereby doing his, his story to the end, rather he got to join into a new story, a new chain of faith and hope that God would continue on and on and on. I should say, this story is quite personal to me because my Aunt Marky and my Uncle John never had children. They weren't able to. And so they poured their love into my dad and into his two sisters who would always come down from my, from my grandmother's house. And when my dad passed away, they poured their love into me and into my brother as well. So I ask you, what is your story? What is your story? Andy Crouch says the story of every human being's life is the story of a chain of persons. And you may not be able to trace your chain a hundred people back to the time of Jesus, but, but who's been part of your story? Who's in your chain? And it might be a mother or a father or a grandparent, but it might be a teacher, a mentor, a pastor, a, a friend who stood with you in a time of darkness, who held on to you, who taught you how to listen to and respond to God's voice, who has been in your chain? And then I would ask the next question is, who are you holding on to in the next generation? Into whose life are you pouring your love, your faith, your hope? Whether it's a family member or even better when it's not. Who are you carrying through their time of darkness? Who are you counseling? Who are you sharing your brokenness with as a way of offering hope for the, for the future? Who are you raising up to take your place in the chain when you are gone? I know the world is a scary place. Today, just like it was in Samuel's day, we're still frightened, we're still distrustful of the other, we are still in need of a savior. But the good news is that's not the only reality of our world today that every single one of us is joined in a chain, hand in hand, arm in arm, with the saints who have gone before and the generations who are coming after. And together we participate in a story of God's faithful love, which the Bible promises will last to the thousandth generation and beyond. Praise be to God. Amen.